Our scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. If you don't have the Colossians study guide yet, there's a couple more back there, and there's a couple more up here. So first come, first serve, and you will see that in there is all kinds of extra information about where we're going, and you would see if you read today's kind of commentary, or if you uh, read it ahead of time, uh, today's sermon's about Jesus. Now, that's not really much different than any other sermon, because I think all sermons actually should begin and end, lead toward and from the cross. But these six verses, um, in a way like very few others in all of the New Testament, perhaps all of Scripture, provide a definitive, comprehensive answer to the question of who is Jesus. If you've ever read the second letter to the Corinthians, um, chapter 11, there's a very interesting verse in verse 4 that Paul writes. And this is what he says. 2 Corinthians 11.4, he warns that for if anyone or if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So Paul says, among other things, that there is another Jesus, perhaps many of them, implying that in answering the question, who is Jesus, there's lots of wrong answers and one right one. And I would argue that the identity of Jesus, whether you are a believer or not a believer here today, or anyone else who might happen to download the sermon, the identity of Jesus is the most important truth that anyone must know before they die. Because when you die, regardless if you believe or not, it will become evidently clear. This question is huge. And there are very few people, if you think about it, and you could ask in your own family, friends, co-workers, there are very few people who uh, would argue the existence of a man named Jesus who lived a couple thousand years ago. Um, he lived in what would be considered, I guess, northern Israel. Few would argue that he was probably a poor Jewish carpenter because his dad was. Um, he was raised in a small village called Nazareth, which at the time was considered the armpit of Galilee, if you will, not the best place to be from. And after about 30 years of relative obscurity, in that he didn't 
have a bunch of followers. He didn't do amazing things necessarily. He, he lived relatively unknown for 30 years. And then he decided, after being baptized by his cousin, John, to leave home and go about the area around Galilee in particular, preaching and teaching and loving the poor and the needy, only to be killed about three years later at the hands of the Roman Empire because of the mouths of some religious freaks. Very few people would argue that. Religious or not. So whether you're religious or irreligious, there are billions, I believe, billions of people who have acknowledged Jesus' existence. There are probably billions or millions of people who have respected Jesus for His teachings. And there are even many who have loved Jesus for His amazing works of justice and grace to the poor and needy in particular. Whether you are Jewish whether you're a Scientologist, whether you are a hippie, or whether you are a Muslim. They all have a place for Jesus. A high respect for Jesus. Now, what I've come to understand as I've been studying this patch is that, is that no one actually ignores Jesus of Nazareth. What they do, though, all of them, I would say, is minimize Him and accept Him for less than He actually is. Or less than the Bible says that He is for sure. Whether that is to accept Him as a good man, a solid teacher, a humble servant, or even a divine, important messenger from God, which is what the Muslims would say. Everyone loves Jesus, in other words. Just not the same one, it seems, as Paul talked about. And certainly not the one in the Bible. Because if you're going to accept the one of the Bible that we're going to look at today, then he is, by nature of what he himself says and what others say about him in Scripture, the ultimate authority in your life. So because most people, and I say most people who've ever lived, like to be their own supreme ruler in their life and their own supreme authority, when they get to Jesus... They'll take the parts that they like and jettison the parts that they don't. The parts that are popular. Maybe add a few parts to the person, the teaching, the message. Anything that ultimately will get me to what I need and what I actually want because I'm the authority. So that's called Welcome to Building a Cult 101. That's exactly how it happens. They all have a place for Jesus and that's usually where it goes sideways as they take pieces off or add pieces on. Jesus once asked Peter, before he had died, Peter was his uh, disciple, kind of his right-hand man, if you will, he, Peter, James, and John. He said, who do people say that I am, Pete? And Peter, uh, after telling him what people had been saying, Jesus said, well, what do you think? And Peter responded by saying, very accurately, well, you're the son of the living God. You're the son of the living God. And that was a Jew saying that, which was very important to understand that context of when someone said, made that statement, that was bold, even blasphemous. And Jesus praised him for his answer. He said, man, good job. Only God can reveal that to you. That's awesome. 
Then only a few verses later, you can read this yourself in Matthew 16, a few verses later, perhaps a few breaths later, a blessed Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Why? Because he pulled Jesus aside and rebukes him, the son of the living God, for his foolish plan. Telling him, oh, I'm going to be crucified. He pulled it. What are you talking about? Didn't you just say I was the son of the living God? You think maybe I have an insight into this? And it reminded me, as you just kind of think about Peter, how easy it is to forget who Jesus is. This is a guy interacting with him right there. He clearly, according to Jesus, knew exactly who he was and in a moment forgot and was rebuking the Son of God. So I'm actually um, less afraid that we have the wrong Jesus, especially for those who claim to be Christian. I'm a little more afraid that you might have the, wrong, the right Jesus with the wrong attitude toward him. And what I mean is, um, a lot of us have the right theology, the right Bible verses, even the right confessions about Jesus, but the wrong disposition toward what those confessions and that theology actually says. I mean, this week, quite frankly, I was a little disturbed a little bit by myself and just thinking about my own history and my approach to Jesus and my discussions about Jesus and how I would even make pictures about Jesus for whatever sermon series. And quite frankly, I think Christians, and I include myself in that, pastors, churches have been very flippant about the identity of Christ, about who Jesus really is. And I'm not saying they misunderstand. I think their theology is right. Most of the time, it's the attitude about Him. Because we, we joke about Jesus being our homeboy, right? We joke about, uh, we sometimes emasculate Jesus. Even those who have right theology. We manimalize Jesus, Okay, that's like the opposite. Like, man, he's not just some like flocked hair hippie. He's like big and tough with tattoos. We go the other way. Sometimes we politicize Jesus, and essentially I think all those things are just a way of dishonoring our Lord and our King. And it's it's not that we reject Jesus entirely, but I think that we take him off his throne and treat him like a person that we can use for whatever agenda we might have, even if it's a, quote, good agenda for good things. That's what's happening in Colossae. So following this, this greeting, this thanksgiving for what the faith they have in Colossae, and in a prayer, it's a deeply spiritual prayer for them to know God, he drills down on the heart of the problem right away. And the heart of the problem in this church, and I think in many churches today, is that the false teachers don't know, and the Colossians have forgotten who Jesus is. So to affirm the true identity of Christ and to establish the supremacy of Jesus Christ once and for all, Paul writes this theologically rich hymn. And scholars look at these six verses and they actually think it's a song. Something that may have been passed on. This is very early 
in the early parts of the church to establish once and for all the theology of Jesus. This should be a song. And it's the richest song in the Bible, I think, about Jesus. So if you want to memorize anything out of Colossians, this is it. So we're going to go through this verse, and I'm just going to tell you who Jesus is. I'm not going to apologize for Jesus. I'm not going to defend Jesus. I'm going to simply say this is who the Bible says he is, and say that one of two things is happening. You, if you're not a believer, you respect Jesus, like Jesus, think he's hunky-dory, but you may have the wrong Jesus. And for those who think they have theologically correct Jesus, there is a certain response demanded by that understanding, and it's worship. We'll see that here. So the first thing they say about Jesus is that he is the image of the invisible God in verse 15. That's a bold statement. A bold statement. God is invisible. John says in his own gospel that he is spirit, that we can't see him. Like the wind, we can see and we can feel, we can experience the impact of his presence, but essentially he remains hidden to us. God can't be seen. John 1.18 had said that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus is the one who has made the Father known, revealed who the Father is. He is the image of the invisible God. So it's true that Jesus is God-like. Okay? I know I say that, and you go, well, theology, but just stick with me. But Jesus came to earth to show us that God is actually Christ-like. In fact, it's fair to say, and I didn't make this up, I can't remember where I got it from, that there is no unchristness about God. That's huge! Jesus reveals what there is to know about the mystery of God. So when we elevate Jesus, we are elevating the image of God. John 14, after telling his disciples, very famous verse, remember 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he starts talking and explaining some things. One of his disciples, Philip, very excited about what Jesus is saying, says, yes, show us the Father. And Philip looks at him and goes, sorry, Jesus looks at Philip and says, what? I've been with you for how long now? Do you want me to show you the Father? And he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You're looking at God the Father. What do you mean? He's the image of that invisible God. In Jesus, every attitude, every word, every interaction, every tear, every rebuke, every action, every sacrifice we see is a picture of our God. The God we cannot see. That's why the book of Hebrews, the very first verses, in verse 3, describes Jesus as the radiance, the purest expression of the glory of God and the exact imprint, like the impression on a coin, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Speaking of Christ. The image of the invisible God. It's amazing when we start talking about who do we worship? Who do we study? How do we know God? Jesus. He is the one that's made Him known. 
So Jesus is not just the first rung on the ladder, and then you learn a bunch of other stuff about God. He is not the, as many Muslims and other religions might say, a second-rate divine manifestation, a, a messenger from God among many. Or even a New Testament, softer version of the Old Testament God. Jesus shows us everything about God. He possesses all the perfections, all the love, all the goodness, the wrath, the wisdom, the holiness, everything. He's the same God of Adam, the same God of Noah, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, the same God of the Old Testament. And more than that, He shows us, as the image of the invisible God, a lot about ourselves. Because what image are we made in? The image of God. So we see everything we're supposed to be in terms of character. As He's sinless, He is perfect. So Jesus is supreme in His relationship to God the Father. We can certainly reflect certain things about God, but never in perfection and never in the perfect image, comprehensive way that Jesus does. So we want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Plain and simple. He is the image of the visible God. Second, they say, kind of a weird statement, He is the firstborn of all creation. Now this verse is misunderstood by a ton of people, and some teach that Jesus was the first thing that was created. Who does that include? Lots of cults, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons. They're famous for for using this verse to to teach a doctrine that is false and heretical started by a guy centuries ago named Arius. And the doctrine essentially is to say Jesus is a created thing. And they use this verse to say, look, he's the firstborn of all creation, the first one born. Now, firstborn does not always have to mean, and quite often does not mean, especially in the Bible, literally the first one born. In fact, in speaking of King David, and prophetically of Jesus in Psalm 89, says this, verse 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Well, David was certainly not the firstborn in his family, and nor was he the first king of Israel. So firstborn, we say Jesus is the firstborn of creation. What this is talking about is the first in rank. In this case, Jesus is the heir, the first heir of all things from God the Father. And he has been exalted by God the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not just first. He is absolutely first. First in position, first in importance, first in dignity, first in rule. Jesus is supreme over any other created thing before any other created thing. Why would they say this? Why would they be talking about this in Colossae? Because what they're trying to do is say Jesus is really good for the beginning, but these are much more important over here. Philosophies of men, traditions of organizations, whatever happens to be. And they're saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is the top. He is the first. And if there is any confusion, the next thing he says makes it evidently clear what he's talking about. 
And this is a part of this that I think, I'm, I'm not convinced everyone even knows this. Especially those who believe in Jesus, confessed faith in Christ. It says, we know that Jesus is supreme, as he just said, in and over all things, because he created all things. Okay? That's what it says. Now, you can't forget that Paul is writing to this Colossian church being assaulted by false teachers who want to add something to Jesus. Now, what he's going to say is any something you try to add is trying to add something to the creator of those things, which is, in layman's turn, stupid. Okay? It's stupid. Here's what he says. Anything that you might add has to be worship of creation over and above the Creator. That's why I think astrology is the stupidest thing I ever heard of in my life. Why would you ever learn and worship stars instead of the Creator of the stars? But the same goes with religion, where religion becomes the most important thing, where legalism or worship of some weird spiritual thing, you're like, why would you do that when you have a Creator over here? Why worship things? And here's what he says. Verse 16, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I think Paul's trying to make a really clear point, right? If you think about it, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and in Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Is that how we really look at Jesus? Or is he just the really sacrificial servant part of God that died on the cross and we love him? He's the creator of everything. All things Visible, that'd be physical. Anything we see physical, Jesus created. So when my, when my kids and I drive across the trestle, and this is what my wife does all the time, we look to the right, and we see Mount Rainier, we look to the left, and we see Mount Baker, and she says, look guys, because she just loves creation, look guys, you know, look at those things. Who created that? And our kids say, Jesus, we've got theologians in the car, Right? <laughs> Because that's true. You don't just say, well, God created that. That's true as well, but it means something more to say Jesus created both of those things and everything. That nothing in creation that has come into existence came apart from Jesus. He created it. He willed it to exist, and He created it for himself. If you read John chapter 1, so if you want three passages, you get Colossians, you got John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. Put them all together. It's a beautiful statement of who Jesus is. John chapter 1 says it this way In the beginning was the Word. And we know 14 verses later, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among. We know he's talking about Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word. You can say Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, 
Jesus, and without Jesus, not anything made that was made. Right? Nothing was made that had been made apart from Jesus making it. Okay, I think I'm convinced now. So when you consider, and you can, there were so many things I wanted to show today of the beauties of the universe, of the incredible vastness of the universe, the bigness of stuff, but also I think sometimes more amazing is the smallness of stuff, like the human eye. Just spend some time looking at that baby, okay? The details of what it requires for that to work, you go, yeah, Jesus made that. When you consider the wonder of the universe we live in, it's because of Jesus. And not only did He make what we see, like our bodies, like the stars and the oceans and the forests and the animals, but with all wisdom we've come up with and all the things that have come from us, He's responsible for. So whatever talents... I mean, sometimes I get blown away by like the guy that thought up the computer, you know? Because the stuff we can do, the cell phone, like... Man, just the, the tech, I don't even understand how it works, but I go, I think it works as it gives me cancer and is making my life much more convenient, and it's cool. But you go, man, the wisdom it took, like the battery. Everything about the battery? All the wisdom, all the talent, all the hands that caught the shape that, the thing, all from Jesus. Incredible. But more than that, he makes the things we can't see. Time. Time. God is outside of time. Jesus is outside of time. He makes time. Wisdom, life, death, justice, the invisible realms, heaven, hell. Yes, He made hell. Spiritual beings, angels, even fallen angels, even Satan is a created being. We don't live in this dualistic like, it's Jesus against Satan. No, no, no. There's no Jesus against Satan. Okay? There is Jesus and Satan. Okay? He is the creator. And not only is Jesus the creator of all things, it says that he is the sustainer of all things. Hebrews 1 said the same way. He up, upholds all things by the word of his power. The entire universe is upheld because Jesus says, continue. The earth continues to rotate because Jesus says, keep rotating. You continue to breathe because Jesus says, keep breathing. Oxygen continues to exist in this world because Jesus said, I want, I want to continue to exist. Nothing has existence. Nothing has power. Not even, quote, spirits. Nothing has perpetuation apart from Jesus. Holy smokes, Jesus is more than a good teacher. If you just see Jesus, if we just stop there as Creator, that changes everything. How we talk about Jesus, how we talk to Jesus, how we hear others talking about Jesus. He's not some marginalized peasant that just kind of like, you know, came and served and had some really good moral lessons like Gandhi. He created Gandhi and everything else. He has been minimized by all of us, minimized by me, minimized to the extent where I'm, I'm praying to Him and forgetting I'm going before the throne of the Creator of the universe. Forgetting that the blood shed on the cross was God's blood. 
Uh, it, it's mind-blowing. And you could spend time on that fact for eons and never fully understand it. That's the mystery of it. That's the mystery piece where it's like revealed by God just as it was revealed to Peter and never fully understood by our finite minds. He shifts halfway through the statement, speaking about creation. And he goes into what I'll just call new creation with this fourth thing that he says about Jesus, that he's the head of the body, the church. And it might seem kind of strange, like, why are you suddenly talking about the church now? You're talking about creating all things and huge and like, in the church. This is because that Jesus is not only the Lord through whom all things in creation were made, but he's also the one through whom all things are remade. The creation, very simply, if you go up on our kids up the stairs, the kids' road, you'll see four like big banners. It represents everything we believe about the story of God. And there's basically just a few chapters that God formed a good, amazing, awesome world that was deformed by sin and now is being reformed in Christ. And ultimately be fully restored when we're with him in his presence. And the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin is what remakes anything that was made. So anything that is broken, which includes everything in creation, okay? All of creation fell. All relationships fell when the relationship with God fell. So if there's a problem in your work relationship, in your marriage relationship, in just a friendly, platonic relationship, in your relationship to material, any problem of brokenness needs to be remade by Christ. The absence of Christ in that thing is the problem. If we truly believe that things are deformed, something has to reform them, something has to remake them, and that's where the gospel comes in and transforms everything. And what it does, it takes that which was created and broken, it recreates it into something beautiful. It takes, just as he took out of nothing and created everything, it takes what is nothing and broken in ashes and makes something beautiful. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that his mission was to come and build a church. Why? Because to the church he entrusted the gospel. Paul calls the church the pillar of truth. The church was entrusted with the gospel. And the gospel is what goes forth and has the power for new creation. So Jesus is not only the Lord of the universe, He is the Lord of that tool that God has decided to use, the church, to recreate this world. Like the created world, the church is built through Jesus, the church is built for Jesus, and the church is held together by Jesus. It is not just an extra thing for Christianity. It is central to God's plan. That's why Jesus is the head of it. And without a head, if you think about that analogy, a body cannot live. You can live without parts of the body. You cannot live without a head. At least I haven't figured that out yet. Okay? And I'm pretty sure they're not going to. The body also cannot grow. It cannot 
function. A church cannot function without Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no church body. You can have gatherings, you can have traditions, you can have religion, you can have buildings, you can have preachers, you can have programs, you can even have really funky spiritual experiences. But without Jesus, it is all meaningless. And sooner or later, it will begin to stink like the dead corpse that it is without a head. Because it's dead. And sadly, there's been plenty of churches who have tried to be started, planted, and perpetuated without a head that is Jesus. There is no power. There is no healing. There is no growth. There is no new life of people coming to faith in Christ without Jesus as the head of the church. Although it can certainly look like a body. It's kind of like weekend at Bernie's. Like, I think that thing's alive. I'm not sure. Looks like a body, but it's dead. When something other than Jesus is set up as Lord in the church, when your heart begins to delight more in being part of a certain church, a certain style of worship, having a certain preacher, having an amazing service project, whatever it is, even a particular theological position, if those things become more important than your heart to driven to worship Jesus, the church is dead or about to die. Guaranteed. Jesus has to be lifted up as primary of all things. Why are we here? To worship Jesus. The church can exist with all or without all of that stuff, but it cannot exist without Jesus as its head. And if you ever get to a place where you're sitting in our church, and you're experiencing the life that is this church, and you start wondering, Man, what happened to Jesus? Ask that question, please. This church doesn't need me. This church doesn't need you. But the church needs Jesus. And we'll only continue with him as the head. Last few. Paul already said in verse 14 that the, this is what we preached on last week, that the entrance into the church comes through the cross. And that it's because of the fifth thing that he says that this is true. That Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here comes that firstborn again. And if you read it literally, then it would be that death gave birth to Jesus. Which is weird. Okay? But if you understand it as we did the firstborn in the first uh, verse 15, I believe. Being the firstborn from the dead here is speaking about the firstborn or specifically about his resurrection. And you should ask, well, Jesus wasn't the first one resurrected. You're right. There were several people resurrected, including Lazarus, who Jesus resurrected himself. So it can't just be the first one resurrected. So what it means is that as it was with the firstborn of creation, he is the first in rank or the most important one resurrected. And if you think about it, every other person that was ever resurrected in Scripture died again. 
Not only did Jesus raise himself, he was the first to be resurrected with a glorified body, having conquered death with the proven power and authority to give new life now and in eternity. And this is where we talked about hope. And Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, we are so such a people to be pitied if there's no resurrection. Our hope is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. Because without Jesus alive and well right now, I am hopeless and I am pitiful. But with him, I have new life. A resurrected Jesus gives me a life with a specific calling and purpose. Whatever amount of time I have here to fulfill it. A resurrected Jesus gives me satisfaction as I live because I realize this is not all there is. A resurrected Jesus gives me life of joy and peace, even especially maybe when I fear or when I fail. A resurrected Jesus gives me strength to endure life. A resurrected Jesus gives me courage as I suffer in life, and it gives me hope when I die. The resurrection of Jesus is huge, and so Paul says here that he has the power to give new life. He's supreme in that. Which leads us to the final things, two things he says about him that brings it all full circle. And it's the final stanza of what I'll just call the Jesus song. It's not one of those cheesy songs. It's like a really good one. Paul proclaims two final things about who Jesus is and why that Jesus is the only one that could do what had to be done for man. And this is going to be kind of theologically rich, but it's hugely important, and I need you to understand why Jesus cannot be accepted as a good moral teacher or just a good servant. You have to believe a particular thing about Jesus, otherwise you have another Jesus and you're worshiping a false god. He writes that Jesus is the fullness of God in human flesh. He'll say it again in Colossians 2.9. And that's because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Yeah, it's a mystery. I don't know how it works. It ain't 50-50, it's full-full. And because he is fully God and fully man, Paul says that he is the supreme reconciler of all things. That's a weird word. But here's the, the facts where this word comes from. Something happened in the relationship between men and God. This is what life is all about, okay? This is why the world is screwed up. Something happened in relationship between man and his creator that made necessary reconciliation. Reconciliation means reestablishing, renewing, or restoring relationships. So something broke the relationship between the creator and his creation. God didn't do anything to break that relationship. In fact, He did everything right. Gave a beautiful, good world full of good things and even gave man and woman to one another. But through Adam's sinful rebellion, through rejecting God's Word, through disbelieving what God had said and believing that well, maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe God actually is wrong. Maybe God doesn't know. They broke the relationship with God. And if men are left to themselves, 
we would never reconcile with God. We would constantly pursue our own sin out of pride that we didn't need Him or out of shame believing that He wouldn't love us. Left to ourselves, we would never pursue Him. We either believe that we haven't done anything wrong or we believe we've done everything wrong. That's where the two sides are. So as spiritual as things might look, sound, feel about false religions or world philosophies or any other attempt of men to make peace and reconcile with God, it ain't going to work. And accepting Jesus as a good teacher or respecting His moral example or even acknowledging Him as a messenger of God does nothing to resolve the problem to make peace with God. The Bible says that we are enemies. The Bible says that we are hostile. We are holding our guns aimed at God out of fear or out of pride. So the only way, think about this, that a holy God can express His holiness and yet not kill us, though it's deserved, and express His love but not condone his sin, our sin, is to send a substitute. And not just any substitute. It has to be a perfect, sinless representative. And so what you see this, this is where the Old Testament, you see this kind of portrayed through the Exodus, where substitutes are given that would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. Like all that Old Testament religious tabernacles, yeah, it has actually meaning. And it points us to what it's actually aimed towards, which is Christ's one sacrifice. So God provides a particular type of substitute to save us and to satisfy Himself at the same time. Who is this? Jesus. The only one who could be. Why? Because He had to be both fully man and fully God. Because only a real human being can actually pay the price for my real human sin and only a man should make payment for his sins since it's man who disobeyed. So a man has to come and represent me and has to be a sinless man to stand in my place. Otherwise, he would have to die for his own sin. But he can't just be a finite man because only the infinite God could ever make the infinite payment required for a holy God. So in other words, only God can save and satisfy Himself at the same time. Only God can maintain His holiness and His justice, and yet His desire to love at the same time. So the only satisfying sacrifice for a perfect God would be a perfect sacrifice for sin. In order to do this, He sacrificed and He substituted Himself for us. So it's huge that Jesus is fully God, creator, image of God, everything there is, and yet he has to be fully man. Not just to be our example, but to actually be a proper and acceptable substitute for me. So Jesus saves us by doing what we could not do because of our sin. 
He is the supreme reconciler, the only one who could bring two sides together and save us. And the incredible thing is that Jesus sends us and he says, I give you the ministry of reconciliation. I give you this, which is to declare that Jesus is the only one that can save. This is who Jesus is. These six verses declare definitively who Jesus is. He is before all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is fully God and fully man, restorer of all things. To make him any less is to make him nothing. To make him any less is to look away from your creator and look towards creation to find meaning in life, and that is, to put it bluntly, foolish and stupid. The reason Jesus is supreme is not because he is a more humble man, not because he is a more loving man, not because he is a more moral man. It is because he is more than a man. He is God. And the only satisfactory response is to worship him as supreme and depend upon him for everything. Many of us have the right Jesus, but you do not have a heart of worship toward him. My guess is because you've inactually accepted who he is, but you have not actually come face to face with the fact that your creator died on that cross for you. That you actually need that level of sacrifice for your sins. So don't diminish Jesus into a friend or an example or to a moral compass. He is Lord. And as I said, some of us have the wrong Jesus and we worship him with everything we have and some of us have the right Jesus and worship him with very little. Don't listen to what I can only describe as the spirit of the Colossian heretic that makes Jesus less than he is, our creator. And every time we gather, every time we gather, let us not forget the lengths that our Creator, out of His own love, not out of obligation, not of ever having to do anything, the lengths that He went to so that we would not find satisfaction in anything else but Him. Our Creator willingly entered into a sinful, broken world, not as a king, not as from some great land, not as part of Rome, but simply as a broken little town called Nazareth where his dad was a carpenter. Our Creator spent three years being made fun of, mocked. He was spit upon all by mouths that He made. Our Creator was nailed to a tree that he planted. Our creator died at the hands of men that he crafted. And in every other religion, the founder or the leader is a man sent to tell others how they can be saved, what they have to do. But Jesus is God Himself, and He came to do way more than just inform. 
Because if we only needed information, he could have sent some other prophet. But our Creator came and died and rose again to give us new life. And I pray and I hope that as you come to the table today, you will come with a little bit of a different disposition towards what is going on. As you see that body, blood, representing the body of our God, the blood of our Savior, and come and be covered by the blood of your God. Not only because for those in pride, you think you don't need that level of sacrifice, but you do, but also for those who are despairing, thinking there's no way I can be forgiven, but you are. Because if it's God's blood, it has infinite power to forgive anything. Come and confess. Come receive forgiveness. Come repent. Come worship. And come experience the life that only peace with God can bring. And know that that peace only comes through Christ. That's who Jesus is. No less. And there ain't much more He can be.